the Lego stuff. I love Legos, even now. Uh, I mean, you get me around a kid with Legos, and I am a kid too. I'm building houses. I, I, I love Legos. Um, I think there's something within me, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people, that I just building stuff is really cool. And so a long time ago, I was reading the book of Ephesians, and in chapter 2, there are some building metaphors that really jumped out at me, especially in the second half of the chapter. Um, it talks about Christ and how there was a wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, and Christ came and he broke it down, and then he, he put them these two nations together, and he made them one people, and he built them on, the, on his foundation, and how they were all built together in one structure, growing into, this is verse 21, into a holy temple in the Lord. And so we've got these building metaphors. And uh, chapter 2 isn't the only place where we'll find them, although that definitely uh, seems to be the seat of it. And so I've been thinking about building. I've been thinking about this kind of thing. And uh, I, I decided we're going to start a series. Uh, I know we have a Haggai series going, but it's going to end soon because um, it's only two chapters. We're going to start a series on Ephesians called Building the Household of God. And we're going to take each chapter of Ephesians through this lens of building metaphors. And today we're going to talk about the first chapter of Ephesians, which discusses the blueprint and the builder. Now, let me step out real broad on Ephesians. There are six chapters in Ephesians, and the first three are kind of theoretical. Uh, you know, before you build a house, you got to have a blueprint. you got to hire a guy to build it. You got to get your materials. You got to get ready. You got to prepare. And that's what the first half of Ephesians is. It's the theoretical, how is this house going to be built? And then as you get to chapters four through six, we're going to get a lot more practical things about, you know, the actual building, the putting things together, the, you know, you know, when you build something, all the, the pipes, you know, they, they're not quite working. So you got to wrangle them in line and you got to, you know, protect the house and weatherproof it. All that stuff, the actual building stuff is in the last uh, three chapters. And so we've got a kind of theoretical how to build the house and then practical building the house itself. So we're going to be talking about Ephesians 1, building the household of God. And Ephesians 1 uh, has a reputation for being rather dense, and uh, maybe it is, but I think today we can really get a handle on it. And I want to point to you just two verses that I think really are going to give us a great handhold on the first chapter of Ephesians. The first one is in, chapter, is in verse 11. And this is going to explain the first 14 verses of Ephesians pretty well. It says, In him, that is Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Don't get too caught up on this idea of predestination. We'll talk about that in a minute. But generally, broad strokes, what this is saying is that God has been planning since the beginning of forever that he is going to have a people. He wants to give us an inheritance. And he is going to use every weapon in his arsenal, everything he can do to make sure that that happens for us. So God has a plan and he's going to make it happen. And how is he going to make it happen? Well, that we find in verse 22. Uh, and we'll read verses 22 and 23. It says, And he, that is God, put all things under his, that is Jesus's, feet, and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the key to this whole thing. Jesus is the builder. So God had a plan 
to make a people, and he chose Jesus to bring it to completion, to make sure all of these things happen. And so this morning, we're looking at these two ideas, a blueprint and a builder, a plan and the man who is going to make it a reality. So with that in mind, we're going to dive right into Ephesians, and I want to read uh, the first two verses before I throw up our points on the slide. So our first two verses, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I usually will skip through these first two verses and uh, for the most part we will as well. But I want to point out to you something that's kind of neat that Paul does in a lot of his letters. And that is he kind of foreshadows some major themes. And we will note uh, that the will of God already we've seen, uh, you know, God's purpose, his predestined plan. The will of God, he says in verse 1, it's a key theme in Ephesians, as are grace and peace uh, from chapter 2, or from verse 2. So that's the introduction. That's how Paul starts his letter. And then we begin verses 3 through 14, uh, this idea of a blueprint, a plan. This is what God wanted. And rather than uh, make you guys you know, guess what's included in the blueprint, I'll just give you all the points right here. And we're going to talk through them one at a time through. Uh, this will be the major bulk of the sermon. And then uh, at the end, we'll address Jesus, the builder, uh, and his role throughout the whole thing. So the blueprint, God wants five things for his people. First, he wants a people that are holy and blameless. Next, he wants to adopt us. Then he wants reconciliation, which we will discuss uh, has several facets to it. He wants to give us an inheritance in that verse, uh, verse 11 that we already read. And finally, he wants to give us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, an assurance that he is good for the inheritance that he is promising us. So these are the five things that we will see that God wants to do. That's been part of his plan since forever. And so as we begin, we're going to read the first two uh, verses three and four. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So uh, here already in, in verse four, we find this idea of a holy and blameless people, that he chose us before the wor- foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That was his plan. And before that, though, Paul begins this with uh, an exciting proclamation of blessing upon God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know how much we stop and think about this, but it's kind of weird that Paul says in the same verse that we bless God and God blesses us. Because as we understand, uh, it's almost, those two things are so different, it's almost as if the, the same word, bless, uh, shouldn't be able to be used. But uh, this has the idea of uh, speaking well of, uh, putting in a good word. And so God, you know, he's like the most powerful being in all the universe. And he's got angels at his disposal, all the forces of nature, everything is in God's power. So when God puts in a good word for us, like things start happening. The world can open up for us in ways that are just amazing. But we also can speak a good word for God, and that usually comes in the form of praise. We praise God. We say wonderful things about him because what else can we do 
but thank and praise him for all the things that he does. And so God blesses us by his word and we bless God back in different ways, but in both ways, we are using our words to, uh, to bring a positive effect on, on one another. We get to verse four, which says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, uh, this gets tricky because this sure, I mean, all of our, our Calvinist radars are flying at this point. Chose us before him. I don't know about that. But that's what it says. And uh, you'll notice at several other places in here, there's an idea of predestination, a uh, forechoosing. And so we're going to deal with that. And uh, what do we do with, uh, with this language? I, I think that it might make more sense to talk about it in Israel language. Okay, so God had a plan to bring a people out of Egypt, to form a nation out of another nation. It's this amazing thing that God wanted to do. And he had this plan that they would be a nation of priests, that they would be a holy people. That was God's plan for Israel, okay? So he brings them out of Egypt, but we know how well that worked. That, yeah, there were some people, I mean, Moses, Joshua, like good, faithful men and women, who came from Israel. They lived out the plan that God had for Israel. But a lot of them didn't. And so we get to see as we jump forward to the New Testament, what Paul says in Romans 9, he says, not all Israel were Israel, which sounds a little bit silly, but what he's saying effectively is that not everyone who was in God's holy chosen nation actually turned out to be part of this holy chosen nation. They, they didn't act like it. He had a plan for them and not every one of them lived up to it. It's kind of like as a parent, you have plans for your children. You want them to grow up, to be successful, to work hard, to you know, go to college or start a business. I don't know what, what you want. But children, they have a choice. Even when you have this plan, even when you have this vision for them, they have a choice to follow it or not, to receive the blessings that you have prepared for them to follow this path that you have in mind for them, or they can go off on their own path. And this is the same sort of thing that we see with predestination. Look, God chose us before him, uh, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That that was his plan from the dawn of time that there would be a people that would be holy and blameless. And as Israel through, uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament becomes less of an ethnic concept and more of a theological concept, we go from being not just, uh, it goes from, from being a, a nation to a, a group of people who have chosen to be what God expected them to be. And so he had this plan for this people, and we can choose to follow his plan or not to follow his plan. But as we will see, there are enormous benefits to following the plan, enormous benefits to being a holy and blameless people. And so this was what God wanted for us. He wants a holy and blameless people, holy being separate for God, blameless being you know, above reproach, that we're not stained by the filth of this world. We're different. We are set apart. This is what God wants for his people. So let's continue. As I said, there were five points, things that God wants. The first is a holy and blameless people. But next, and this one's a little bit easier, he wants to adopt us as sons. In verses five and six, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in verse 5, we see he's predestined us for adoption to himself. That this, the idea of adoption is that he wanted an heir. He wanted someone to inherit this amazing thing that he had to give. And in order to do that, he had to make us holy and blameless. That these things are going to start to connect. He wanted, and he wanted to adopt us so he could give us the fourth point, an inheritance. And this was what God wanted for us. And then in verse 6, he says, this is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. That just as if you look at like a Frank Lloyd Wright house, when you see the detail, the incredible ways that he makes things happen, that, that no one else could make happen, it's, it's incredible. It's a work of art. In that same way, when the effects of God's blueprint, God's plan come into reality, it's insane. It's wild. And when people see it, it brings glory to God. And so as we follow the blueprint that God has set forth for us, we can be to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. So he wants a holy and blameless people. He wants to adopt us. But next, he wants reconciliation. And this, as I said, has multiple dimensions. We'll read verses 7 through 10. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Uh, I want to take this in a little bit different of an order than Paul does. I want to do verses 9, 10, and then I want to take verses 7 and 8. Because verse 9, we get a pretty simple uh, place to start with this. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So what is the mystery? Well, Paul tells us pretty obviously in chapter 3, verse 6, that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is that the Gentiles and the Jews can both access God. And that also continues in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, there's probably more to things in heaven and on earth than just Jews and Gentiles, but definitely that's included. And so there's one aspect of this reconciliation is that these two disparate groups of people can now become one. And that's a huge portion of what chapter two is about, the breaking down of the wall, the uniting and one foundation. Because now, because of Jesus, these things can become one. There can be a reconciliation where there, that was not possible before. But even more critical is the, rest, is the reconciliation we find in verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So God, through Jesus, was able to reconcile us to him because we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So this is a good time to stop and note that even though we're going to wait until like verse 19 or 20 
to talk about Jesus the builder, that in nearly every verse, there are like five verses in this whole chapter that do not mention Jesus almost explicitly. That he is the one who blesses, where we find blessings. He is the one that we are chosen in. He's predestined us through Jesus. In Jesus, uh, we find blessings. We have redemption through Jesus' blood. So much of this is possible because of Jesus. And so we find that we get not just a little bit, not just like a side of grace and forgiveness, but grace which is lavished upon us in wisdom and insight. And so we, a people who were formerly opposed to God, we who were once far off, can now be brought near. Yes, I'm I'm stealing from chapter two again. Because through Jesus, we can have forgiveness. Through Jesus, we can become what we never were before, a holy and blameless people. Through Jesus, we can find a reconciliation with God and with uh, all kinds of people so that we can all be unified to serve God. So God has this plan. A holy and blameless people. He wants us to be his children so we can receive an inheritance, which we'll get to in a moment. And he wants to reconcile all his people together and his people to him. Now we get to verse 11 and 12. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We'll note in verse 12, to the praise of his glory, this is again uh, from verse 6, that what God is doing in us brings glory to him. As we backtrack through, his, through to verse 11, who, uh, him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God, as we already mentioned, is so powerful. And he does not break our free will, but he will do just about anything else breaking all laws of physics and, uh, you know, the wild values of, of probability. God can do whatever he wants. And he has all of these tools at his disposal. And every one of them, he is working out in our favor so that we can be reconciled to him, so that we can receive this inheritance. God is going to do everything within his power to help us receive the inheritance that he so much wants to give us. And so, as we said, he adopted us to give us an inheritance. We, we have, we've, been, we've been pointing toward this inheritance. So what is it? I mean, that, you know, don't you want to know why we're, why we're laboring? What's this inheritance that we're waiting on? Well, uh, Paul doesn't make it explicit, but he tells us a few things that I think are critical to know about the inheritance. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, in the not, oh, uh, sorry, lightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He starts with this, having the eyes of your heart in light. He says, you need the Holy Spirit, which is something we'll get to in a moment, so that you guys can even comprehend how awesome this is going to be. It's kind of like if you ever go to a buffet and you're like, oh, my eyes are bigger than my stomach. It's like the opposite of that, that this is so amazing. There's so much waiting for you that you can't even comprehend it. You've got to have special powers from the Holy Spirit just to begin to understand how awesome this is going to be, how incredible what's waiting for you is. There's more hints to it. In uh, chapter 2, we're told that uh, there's grace involved in this. In chapter 3, we're told that glory is part of this inheritance. Now, glory is kind of a... 
uh, fluffy word. It's hard to define, but think uh, victory. Think winning. Think reigning with Christ, which is also something that we'll see in chapter 2, that we're going to be raised with Christ to reign with Christ. And finally, in chapter 5, we'll see that uh, immoral people cannot inherit this inheritance. And so that's why it's so critical for us to be holy and blameless people, to have reconciliation and forgiveness, because without that, we can't get this inheritance. These all work together. And so he says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. And this is kind of interesting because he doesn't use the future tense. We will obtain an inheritance. He says, we have the perfect tense. We have obtained it. And uh, you might think, well, that's kind of odd because I think I would know if I had this amazing gift that is waiting for me. Uh, And yet, think about it this way. Um, It's like God wrote us into his will. We haven't gotten it yet, but we know that we will because it's assured that if we keep following God, if we continue to be holy and blameless people, continue to be forgiven by him uh, according to our, you know, working our our little tiny end of the bargain, that we are going to receive that inheritance. Uh, I think another way of thinking it might be, it's kind of like if I give you like a $50 Outback gift card, like I have, I haven't, you haven't eaten yet, but I've given you all the blooming onions and steaks you can buy for $50. Like, we have this. We don't have it yet, but we have it already because it's waiting for us. It's assured because God made sure that we would have it, made sure that we understood, as our points continue, that he was good for it. Verses 13 and 14. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He says, you guys got the Holy Spirit in verse 14, and it was a guarantee. Now, a lot of words through different translations that they use for this. Uh, down payment is what I use, but guarantee, um, this is an earnest. God wants us to be sure that we know that he is good for what he has promised. And he has given us, of all things as a down payment, a part of himself to dwell in us, which is just wild. I mean, maybe it's a little bit fanciful of me to think like this, but like when you go buy a house, you put down 20% down payment. And if if God himself dwelling in us is anywhere near 20% of this amazing inheritance we're going to see, like this is awesome. Like I said, that's beside the point, but what I'm saying is this. This is amazing. You don't want to miss out on what God is giving us. And so in order to ensure that we knew that God was good for it, he gave us the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we do with the Holy Spirit? Well, it enlightens our eyes, as we'll see a little bit later. It transforms us to help us be holy and blameless people. It helps us in so many ways. And so here, as we, uh, come to the end of this blueprint, we just say that God had this plan. God wanted to make a people. And so he used all of the tools at his disposal and especially got Jesus to make all of this stuff happen, to forgive us our sins so that we could be reconciled to God and to him, give us the Holy Spirit so that we could be holy and blameless people. And because we're holy and blameless people, we can receive an inheritance and we can also do that because we're adopted. These all work together. And this is has been God's plan, not since yesterday, not since Jesus was rejected by the Jews, but since the dawn of time, since the beginning of everything. 
this is what God has been planning. That's exciting. And so as we step back and we say, this is the blueprint. Next, we got to read the rest of this chapter and figure out what's going on next. Well, we'll read verses 15 through 18. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you were called, or, sorry, to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Read through verse 19 there. Paul says, look, as I consider, as I think about all the good things that are just in store for us, just waiting on the other side, he says, I can't help but pray. I can't help but get excited. I can't help but hope that you guys understand how amazing this is. And he hopes that they can understand the inheritance that is waiting for them. And he hopes that they can understand the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe. Because in verse 20, he says, this is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And so now, now we learn about Jesus. Jesus, who has been present all throughout this chapter. Jesus, who's been making this all happen. But now we get a section explicitly telling us about Jesus. Jesus, the man who made it all happen. And this Jesus, he was raised by the power of God, that same power that's working in us. And he was, he was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That this Jesus died and was raised by the power of God. And this Jesus was seated at the right hand of God above every power that will ever exist nor has, or has ever existed. Jesus is higher than that. And because of Jesus' unique position of power, he is able to do all of these things that we've already talked about. He is able to be the body, the fullness. Uh, he's able to be in charge of, the head over the church. That is us. <laughs> that Jesus is the one who took God's plan and made it a reality. Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus, the wall breaker, as we'll see next week. Jesus, who in, ver- in chapter 3, verse 11, we're told this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That Jesus is the one who's going to take this eternal purpose, this forever plan that God has been making, he's going to bring it to perfection. He has brought it to perfection. And so then as we take a step back, we look, there are two things in chapter one, two critical things we need to see. And the first is that God has a plan. This plan to reward us, this plan to make us his people, to bring us near. And who better to make that happen 
But Jesus, God himself, who came to earth, who lived as a man, who was able to reconcile, able to forgive, able to make us into the kind of people that were adoptable and inheritable. We have all of this to thank God for, to thank Jesus for the work that he has done. And so as we ask ourselves, what do we do with this information? Because as I said, uh, chapters one through three are a little bit abstract. But I, I think the answer here is obvious. Like, if this has been God's plan since the beginning, then I don't want to let God down. Like, I'm, this is, there's a lot leading up to me being here and being where I am or surrounded by Christians being a part of this, and I don't want to let God down. And also, there's this amazing inheritance that is so amazing I can't even fathom it, and that's awaiting me. And if that's what I have in store, then I don't want to miss out on that. And as we consider this amazing plan. We don't, we don't want to lose out on God's plan. As we consider Jesus, the person who made it all happen, we don't want to let him down either. We got to keep pursuing him, keep choosing to serve God. And so uh, here in a moment, we're going to give an invitation. But first, I'd like to pray about this chapter here. And uh, then, then we'll offer the invitation. Let's pray. God, our Father, you have an awesome plan to adopt and sanctify us. You want to give us an inheritance, and you've been working tirelessly since the dawn of time to make it happen. For this reason, because of the faith of the church here and the love toward all the saints, I thank you and ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom to know you, that our hearts would be enlightened to know the hope and the glorious inheritance that is waiting for us. Help us to know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us that believe, according to the power that raised Christ Jesus our Lord from the dead. You raised him from the grave to reign with you in heaven, and we know that if we follow you and the blueprint that you have for us, that you will do the same with us. Help us to stay steadfast in this calling so that we may receive the end of all you have planned for us. We thank you for caring so much for us. We thank you for planning out wonderful things, and we thank you for sending your son to set those plans in motion. To the praise of your glory and the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. Now's the time we've set aside. If you have any need, we would love to help you. We've got water here, and if you want to start on this journey, if having heard about this plan, you want to be a part of it, we'd love to help you with that. Or if you've fallen off the wayside, if you need encouragement and you need help, we'd love to pray with you. Whatever your need may be, please come as we stand and sing.